Hey, and some of you guys are going to have a hard time. Go ahead and have a seat. You're going to have a hard time because some of you go by multiple names, I found out. You know people like that? In Alabama, if you run for a state office, and it might be the same here in Tennessee, I'm not for sure, but I know it's the case in Alabama, that if you run for a state office, you have to put on the signs that you have out on the side of the road what it is that you are known as. And so you can drive through the state of Alabama and you can see people who are running for sheriff or you can see people who are running for some member of the city council or something and it will say Jim Bubba Smith. And Bubba will be in, you know, in quotes. Or, or it'll say Jim Bob or something because you have to put what you are known by plus your actual legal name. So there are some people in Alabama going to have a hard time when their name's called because they're not sure exactly exactly what it is. Don't know if it's going to be the case for you. Hope not. I hope you'll be listening and you will and you'll hear. I want to welcome all the sleepers here this morning. That has nothing to do with those of you who um, are just now waking up from your slumber, but it has everything to do with the fact that we've been talking for the whole month of January about this idea that that we live in an existence where it's almost as if we are sleeping we're sleeping through life because we have been cursed to an existence where our true lives and our true identity, our value, and our worth, well, they've all been hidden from us. We're sleeping, but we don't realize that we're asleep. And so we go through life and we focus on our age and we focus on our accomplishments and our happiness and our passions. And that is what consumes us. And we end up missing out on the reality of God that's all around us. And we become blind to the very light that is living within us. And there are so many competing voices out there that are trying to get us to awaken and to be able to, to promise that they can provide a new life. And it can be difficult to know exactly where to turn. We've mentioned this month how in his book, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor, well, he noted that we live in what he called an imminent frame. And what it is, it's a boxed-in way of, of viewing life. It's a boxed-in way of viewing life where, where we see only what is right here in front of us. And we don't realize, perhaps, that there is a larger world that's out there. There's a larger life that is out there to be, to be experienced. And what's worse is that not only is our own understanding of the world limited, but our own understanding of God is also boxed in. You see, there have always been those who have loved to have boxed size gods. And you can usually find them in the tightly gripped hands of people who prefer a God that they can manipulate, a God that they can manage, a God that they can predict. And sadly, those who are followers of God have, have long been apart, and I know it says subsided, but it should be subscribed, to a boxed-in theology. It's a boxed-in way of looking where, where we put these limits around God and we say, well, this is how big God is and God fits in this box. And, well, or this is how big that God is. Or maybe you have a box that's bigger, but God still fits in right in the box. It's been going on for a long time. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the army of Israel was once again going into battle against those hated Philistines. Now you remember the Philistines, right? They're the guys with the black hats of the Old Testament. They were those original inhabitants of Canaan. And they're the ones that don't know the Lord. And they're the ones that are constantly involved in battles with God's people. 
And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, there is, there's another skirmish that's going on. And yet what you find happening in verse 2 is that the Israelites were defeated. They were whipped. The army of God lost 4,000 men. This is not the way Israel had been accustomed to going into battles. Not the battles that they had been accustomed to fighting. Not the end result that they had been used to seeing. And so the leaders wondered among themselves, well, what's going on? And then it occurred to them. And in verse 3, they said, hey, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant. Let's bring it up from Shiloh so that it can go into battle with us and it's going to save us from our enemies. Well, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. That's what God's people needed. They needed God's box. Because if you think about it, the Ark of the Covenant had gone with the children of Israel in some very, in some very forceful times. Joshua chapter 3, when they crossed the Jordan. Joshua chapter 6, when they marched around Jericho and on through the rest of Canaan as they would go battle after battle and the ark of God would leave them. And as long as they had the ark of the covenant, they had God and he was in the box. So let's go down to Shiloh and let's get the box of God. And so they sent some men there and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty and and when they brought it back and the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant coming into the camp, they got so excited and their joy was, so, was, was just so overflowing that the text says that the ground literally shook. The ground shook and the Philistines, they, they weren't too far away for the battle and they could hear all the celebrating and all the shouting and perhaps the ground shaking. God had arrived. The Lord was in the camp. And the Philistines, well, they were scared to death. And they panicked. And they said, this is awful. This is a disaster. Nothing like this has ever happened before. They went on to say, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods who have come into the camp of the Israelites? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. And so fearing the worst, the Philistines began to prepare for battle. I mean, they're doing all their calisthenics and they're sharpening up all their spears. They're getting everything ready because this was going to be a battle like none other because the ark of God had come into the Israelite camp. And so let's read how that God and the ark and the Israelites whipped the Philistines. Keep reading in verse 10. It says the Philistines fought desperately. And the Israelites were defeated again. And the slaughter was great. 3,000 Israelite soldiers died that day. The survivors tucked tail. They ran. They fled back to their tents. And it, then it says that the ark of God was captured. How does that happen? I mean, they had what they needed, right? The Israelites... They had no idea what was going on. But because of their disregard for God and his word and the selfish reasons that they asked for his help, God didn't show up. He did not accept their invitation. You see, Israel lost God's presence long before they lost the ark. Because the blessing of the Lord leaves when people try to, to box God in for their own selfish agendas. And we limit God whenever for our own selfish wants and needs, we decide this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have my God in a box and I'm going to pull him out whenever there's difficulty. 
And whenever I'm going to go into battle, I'm going to have my God, and I'm going to put him in my box, and I'm going to carry him there to the job interview, and, and I'm going to carry him into the test, and, and I'm going to walk with him down the aisle. And, and I'm going to carry him into the office with me, and I'm going to carry him wherever it is that I go, in his box, safe and secure. Israel's faith was in a box, not in God. And so I want you to understand this morning that I, I don't want us to get a bigger box for God. I just want us as a church to get rid of the box altogether. Because he doesn't fit in boxes. It's one of the reasons the contemporaries of Jesus didn't really know what to do with him. But they wondered, what do we do with this guy who we just can't really wrap our, our mind around? And so they designed an assortment of boxes. They had some that were big and some that were medium, some that were, were smaller. But he never fit in any of them. They called him a revolutionary, and then he goes and pays taxes. They labeled him as a country carpenter, but then he confounded all of the religious scholars. They came to see his miracles but he wouldn't play their games and refused to cater. He defied the easy definitions. He was a Jew who attracted Gentiles, a rabbi who was run out of the synagogue. He was a holy man that hung out with sinners. In a male-dominated society, he recruited females. In an anti-Roman culture, he opted not to denounce Rome. He, he talked like a king, and yet he went around living like a peasant. And they tried to confine him, and they tried to contain him, and they tried to decide, well, where does he fit? Is he a Jew? Is he a, a rabbi? Is he a carpenter? Who is this person? But they couldn't make him fit. And we're still trying today. Need a parking place or a green light? Just rub the plastic, do me a favor, Jesus, pull it out of your box, and see if you can't find one right there in front of the mall. Need a little prosperity? Just pull out the box for your make me rich, Jesus. Everything should be okay. You know, I once reduced Jesus down to a handful of doctrines. He was a recipe. And if I had the right ingredients, and if I could just put it all together just right, then, well, then I would have the I love you, Jesus, right there in my box. I'm proud of you, Jesus. I could carry it with me. Politicians pull box-sized versions of Jesus off the shelf, asserting that Jesus would most certainly vote green, or conservative, or often, or never. Jesus would vote like a hawk. He would fly like a dove or an, or an eagle. The Jesus of my politics comes in handy during elections and impeachments. When it comes to counting or containing stuff, you know, boxes are great. I mean, it's great to be able to have boxes and you can put things in them and, and you can keep your cereal and you can keep your books and you can keep different valuables and you can store all kinds of things in the attic. But when you're trying to figure out just how it is that you are to relate to God and how it is that you are to approach Jesus the Christ, well, boxes just don't, they just don't work. Peter, James, and John found this out. Jesus led them up on a high mountain to be alone and as the men watched, Jesus was transfigured. His appearance changed. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Peter, James, and John look at Jesus and 
The text says that he was metamorpho right there in front of them. It's the root of our English word metamorphosis, and it's talking about how that there was a change. There was a change of form that was in keeping with the inner reality. What was on the inside was now able to be clearly seen. His inner essence was now illuminating his outer countenance. And their boxed-in theology was smashed. They couldn't see Jesus again in the same way. I mean, once the lid has been taken off the box, and, and once all of a sudden everything that's in just begins to bubble out, once that light is so bright that you're almost blinded, how can you look at him again the same way? It was all changed. And so here as we, as we close out today, this whole idea of being awakened and, and seeing God afresh and new, I think that I think that their experience gives us a path to getting out of our own boxed-in theology. Here's the first thing. I believe we need to rediscover a God-centered view of Jesus. A God-centered view. You know, for thousands of years, God gave us his voice. And then prior to Bethlehem, he gave us his messengers and his teachers and his prophets and his words. But in Jesus... In Jesus, God gave us himself. And now, a lot of people have trouble with this particular teaching. Islam sees God as one who sends others. He sends angels. He sends prophets. He sends books. But God is too holy to come to us himself. And for God to come and touch the earth, it would be called a shirk, where people who claim that he has touched the earth shirk God's holiness. They make him to be defiled. They, they blaspheme him. That's... That's the understanding that some have. But Christianity, by contrast, celebrates God's celebrated descent. His nature did not trap him in heaven. Instead, his nature drove him to earth. And in God's great gospel, he not only sins, he becomes. He not only looks down, he lives among. He not only talks to us, he lives with us, lives among us. He even lives in us. Scripture says that Jesus radiates God's own glory and expresses, expresses the very character of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. Jesus himself. No greater believer that Jesus was God than Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me, well, has seen the Father. He's saying anyone who has seen me weep has seen the Father weep. Anyone who has seen me laugh has seen the Father laugh. Anyone who has seen me passion, impassioned, then, well, you've seen the Father impassioned. And if you'd like to see God, then take a look at Jesus. You see, this is what Peter missed. Though he had earlier confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he placed Jesus in a box. He placed Jesus in a box, and, and he labeled it great religious leaders. And he said, let's just put you right here with, with Moses and Elijah, these, these men who are here on the mountain with you, and, and let's build a place where we can come and, and we can stay a while and, and we can talk and reminisce. And if we're not careful, we can do the same. Where Jesus becomes just one of, of many voices. And we mentioned last week how, how we must resist the trend to see Jesus just as 
Just as some guru alongside Buddha or, or Joseph Smith or Muhammad or Confucius or the latest YouTube vlogger. But we must also guard against allowing Jesus to become one among many when we open up our Bibles. You see, without thinking, we lump the law of Moses and the words of the prophets and the writings of Paul and the message of Jesus just all together. And we assume that, well, since they're all in the same big Bible book, that they all carry this same equal weight. And we unconsciously say, yes, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but Moses was the lawgiver of God, and Elijah was the prophet of God, and, well, Paul was the apostle of God. And it's as if, since they are all of God, that they all must be the same. But we must learn to read Scripture through a Jesus lens, rediscovering a God-centered view of Jesus, and being reminded that Jesus is not merely of God, Jesus was and is God, and as such, we are to filter all other voices, even inspired ones through him. Which means that our interpretations must be in keeping with his character and his mission. He is the message by which all other messages and messengers must be compared. It's why God shut Peter's building program down. No more discussions about basilicas or tabernacles or memorials or shelters. This is my son, God said. Listen to him. Listen to him. And after we, after we were able to get a God-centered view of Jesus, it should allow us to have God-centered obedience when it comes to Jesus. A God-centered view of Jesus should lead us to a God-centered obedience to Jesus. Many who say that they follow Jesus just don't seem to think that doing what he says is included. Preacher Rick Ashley tweeted this week, he said, people want Jesus to lead but not act like he's actually in charge. Yeah, that's a great leader, right? You lead but you're not really in charge because I am, you're in my box. And whenever you get a little bit out in front, whenever you ask a little bit too much, whenever you're just a little bit too radical, just understand, I'm putting the box, our top back on the box. So you lead, but you don't have to be in charge. I want Jesus, but I don't want to love my neighbor. I want Jesus, but I don't want to die to myself. I want Jesus, but I really don't want to put others first. I want Jesus, but I don't really want to sacrifice my wealth. I want Jesus... But I really don't like welcoming strangers or people who are different from me. I want Jesus, but I don't want to keep myself pure. I want to live. I want Jesus, but I don't want to be a peacemaker. I want to get my way. And we hear the words of Jesus echoing in our ears. So why do you call me Lord? Jesus said, tell me, tell me one more time. Why is it that you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? He said, just tell me. I want Jesus, but I want to be in control. I want to be able to put Jesus in my box. And, and I want it to all be nice and safe. And, and I want it to be something that I'm comfortable with. Because in a world that's out of control, we need a God that we can control. A comforting presence that's akin, that's akin to a lapdog where we call and and he obeys, and I want Jesus, but I want him to stay in his box. I want him to stay in his box. 
You see, that's why my obedience is a sign that I am submitting my will to his. See, my obedience is a way of of me showing that I'm willing to take the top off the box and I'm willing to let God be God. I will not tell him what he should do or be. Instead, I will allow him to guide and mold me into the image that, that he desires. And in my obedience, I will leave the mountaintop when he says that it's time to go. You know, if we're not careful, mountaintop experiences, well, they can become the experience. And we can end up worshiping a spiritual or emotional experience of God rather than God himself. But Peter, James, and John were given a glimpse of God in order to prepare them for what lay ahead. And that's the purpose of mountaintop experiences, to prepare us to go back down into the valley and to do life. It's one of the reasons that we talk about how that when we come together for moments like this and we come and offer our worship and our praise, that we desire to see God more clearly as we take the bread, as we drink the cup, as we are able to look into Scripture, as we are able to bow before Him in prayer, because we realize that this is a mountaintop experience. And we've got to go to work tomorrow. And we've got to go to school. And we've got to tackle some big things. And so we need to be prepared for whatever it is that's going to come. And so we rush to the mountain. We rush to the mountain so that we might be able once again to have a fresh look at God. And maybe it's the retreat or maybe it's the conference or maybe it's the monastery. Or maybe you literally go up on a mountain to be closer to the Lord. But God never intended for us to stay on the mountain. Those disciples, they had to go back to their regular lives. It's another reason why they couldn't stay on the mountain to build the three shelters. They had work to do in the valley. In fact, when Peter, James, and John, when, when they go back down off the mountain, the first thing that happens, the first event that comes, they meet a man whose son has been suffering greatly, and, and they experience the fact that their fellow disciples are helpless to do anything for him. They go from the mountaintop to ordinary life, to work, and to demands, and to failure. But here's the thing, when they walk down that mountain, when they walk down that mountain into the valley facing whatever it was that life was going to bring, they knew something for sure and for certain in a way that they had not known before. God was walking down the mountain with them. God was walking with them because the box, well, the box had fallen apart, the lid had been blown off, and they had seen Jesus for who he truly was. Now, they didn't understand it all. And Scripture shows they would not understand it all until they had witnessed Jesus' resurrection. And after that resurrection, it was then that they would ascend another mountain where they would go and Jesus would tell them, look, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem and throughout Judea and, and even out there in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he says, and be sure of this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now I want you to think about what a Herculean task that sounds like for a ragtag group of followers of a carpenter turned rabbi. But understand, they were not just followers of some boxed-in rabbi. That they were not just followers of some 
boxed-in carpenter. They were followers of the God of creation. And they were followers of the God who made the lame walk and the blind see. They were followers of a God who walked on water and walked out of the grave. And they were followers of the God who lit up the mountain. And so they were willing. They were willing to attempt something so big that if God was not a part of it, that they were going to fail. And the reason that we have been talking about this all month long is because I wonder if we have become so accustomed to our sleepy existence that we have forgotten the true nature of the God we serve. Because when was the last time you attempted something big for God? Not just getting up on a Sunday morning when it was cold and the window was frosted over and you decided to drive to some building to be with some people and sing some songs. When was, some, when was the last time you did something big for God where you spoke out for God, where you, where you went where God was sending, where you changed what was going on in your very life? And I know I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Friends, there are too many Christians and there are too many churches who are attempting nothing, who are accomplishing nothing, who are doing nothing, and calling it normal. And that's why I rejoice at the moments when here at East Brainerd we get glimpses of God and launch out in obedience. That's why I get excited when I hear people talking about the New Beginnings House that we have here on our campus. And the fact that just a few years ago it was not there and that meant that a few years ago there was not a home where, where, where women who were trying to get their life back together and, and get things back on track could come and to stay and, and be safe and be mentored. That's why I get excited whenever we're able to talk about the snack pack ministry that we have and, and how that we went from, from one school, from one high school now to, to almost 15, 16 schools to, to thousands of students who are now getting food on the weekends that, that just a few years ago they were not receiving. It's why I get excited when, when, when I am able to talk to people and how that here at our congregation that we have a ministry that reaches out to those who, who speak Spanish and who, who come from different countries and that, that we are able to, to worship together and we are able to, to eat at the same table and that, and that we're able to share life with one another. It's why I get excited when, I, when I'm able to talk about how that as a church family we're, we're doing we're trying to do something, even though it's small, at least to, to reach out to a demographic in our society that, that for whatever reason over the last few years have, have turned away from organized religion. And we're trying to look to those who are, who are in their 30s, who are in their 20s, and say, would you, would you consider listening to Jesus? You've heard a lot of other voices. Would you consider listening to him? And when I hear about different things that our yak are involved in, I get excited. I think there's something big that's going on that's, that's happening. And I know that there are some of you who are here this morning who have, who have gone to, to the streets of Chattanooga and participated in the, the Cry for the Broken ministry and reaching out, to the, reaching out to the women that are there living on the streets. And I hear about the, the results and I hear about the relationships that are being formed. And I think that's something big that's being done for a big God. And I think about people like Jordan and Jeff and Jeremy and Whitney and, and Tim and Jesse 
Individuals who grew up right here in this place, and they got a glimpse of God and said, you know what, I want others around the world to see that. And so because of that, in Peru and in the Dominican Republic, there are individuals who have been listening to Jesus and who've been hearing about who Jesus is because you had individuals who grew up here and said, I'm not content to stay in Chattanooga. I've got to leave the mountain. And I've got to go. It's exciting whenever I hear about our, our teens inviting their, their friends, inviting their classmates, inviting people that are on the ball teams with them and saying, why don't you come and, why don't you come and listen to Jesus with me one day? And then seeing those, those same teens who were invited, bringing their, their parents with them, and then being able to rejoice as, as families are being baptized. That's exciting. That's big. And I just wonder what the future holds. Because I am a firm believer that God does not live in a box. And, and that he desires to continue doing big things through this congregation and through the men and women who are his followers. And I just want to ask you, when was the last time you got in on it? And maybe there was a period in your life where you said, you know what, my God is so big, my God is so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. But for whatever reason, you, you put him back in the box. Maybe it was because of a divorce. Maybe it was because of something that church leaders told you. Maybe it was because of something that happened with your children. Maybe it's something that happened with your own health. When was the last time that you attempted something so big that if God was not a part of it, it would fail? The last time that you attempted something so big for God in your small corner of the world that the people who live around you were changed? You see, I think the basic problem with Christianity and with the church today is an unworthy concept of God. Or maybe I should put it this way. We're asleep living in a dream world where our God is too small. So here's what I would say. That if your God's job description reads, make my life more comfortable and convenient, then your God is too small. If your God says things like, you don't need to take a risk, you just need to play it safe, then your God is too small. If your God's job is to obey you and do what you want when you want him to do it, if your God exists like a genie that you can rub on the side and then he'll grant you wishes, then your God is too small. If your God is a white guy with a closet full of suits and ties, if your God loves Americans more than he loves Iranians, if your God is always saying come but never saying go, then your God is too small. If your God never wrecks your schedule or messes up your plans or never asks for something that isn't in the budget, if your, God's need, if your God needs a certain president to be in office to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in this nation, then your God is too small. If your God has never filled your eyes with tears because of his grace or, or taken away your breath because of his power, then your God is too small. If your God always agrees with you and always thinks your opinions and your preferences are the most reasonable, if he always likes whatever it is that you happen to like, and if your God is a Baptist or if your God is a Methodist or if your God is a Lutheran, if your God is a Catholic or if your God is a Church of Christer, then your God is too small. If your God is just fine spending an hour with you a week in church, then your God is too small. 
If your God looks at your sin of greed or, or lust or, or gossip and says, well, it's no big deal. You're doing good. In fact, you're better than most people. Then your God is too small. And if your God says that your marriage is too messed up and your family is too fractured, if your God says that you are too young or you are too old, if your God says that you are too broken or you are too poor, or you are too late or you are too guilty, then you are serving a God that is too small. Because friends, if your God fits nicely in a box, then he's not God at all. He's not God at all. So here's what I want you to do today. I, I want you to open up the box. I want you to open up the box. And I want you to look inside and I want you to realize he's not there. Because God doesn't do boxes. He's too big. And that's the God that I want you to see. And that's the God that I want you to submit to. And that's the God that I want you to love. And that's the God that I want you to obey. And that's the God that one day I want you to see him at his throne and fall down in worship and say, thank you for not fitting in my box. Would you like to respond to that God today? I encourage you to do so as together we stand and sing.